The following podcast contains a bit of explicit material, but much, much more that is not explicit, just as a percentage. It's Friday, May 13th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. If nothing else, Elon Musk's possibly thwarted or suspended attempt to buy Twitter did smoke out the ACLU, prompting them to say, well, you know, Trump, he is an ex-president, and uh, his words and thoughts are germane to our national conversation. Yes, their executive director, Anthony Romero, released a statement saying, like it or not, President Trump is one of the most important political figures in this country, and the public has a strong interest in hearing his speech. 48 hours later, Musk turtles, and the ACLU says to itself, oh my God, couldn't we have just held off on that statement for just a while longer? Because Elon Musk told us Friday morning via Twitter that his acquisition of Twitter was being put on hold because of what the Wall Street Journal audio briefing called... Elon Musk says his deal to buy Twitter is temporarily on hold, pending details about the amount of fake accounts on the social media platform. The Wall Street Journal is wrong. It is the number of accounts. If it's countable, it's number. Now, it's not fake news, what the Wall Street Journal was advancing, just poorly phrased news. I hope content moderation can be extended into the realm of the grammatical one day. The stated reason for leaving that Twitter is more bot than a Thai strip club. It's not the actual reason. I don't believe it is. No, also for that joke to work, you need to know that the currency of Thailand is the bot. Earlier in the week, a research firm with the regrettable, though entirely amendable name Hindenburg Research put out a note giving what I think is the right explanation for Musk's latest move. To quote The Guardian about this, Hindenburg Research said there was a significant chance that the Tesla chief executive will seek to pay less than the agreed bid price of $54.20 a share. Quote, we are supportive of Musk's effort to take Twitter private and see a significant chance the deal will close at a lower price, said Hindenburg. Well, of course, since the $54.20 price, the stock market dropped a lot. Shares of the NASDAQ 100 Technology Index, a rough proxy for Twitter's peers, dropped a little more than 10%. Elon's thinking if he had just held off a month, he'd get a 10% discount on his price. Which, you know, you get a 10% discount on a three-pack of Hanes t-shirts. It's nice. When the offer is $44 billion, it's actually the market cap of the entire Haynes company. And so Elon Musk announces a purchase pause. Of course, he announces it on Twitter, which is like Jack Dorsey driving a Tesla down PCH at 95 miles an hour announcing, I don't know if this thing could go 100. I might return it. What I'm saying is this, rich guys, they're not like us. On the show today, I spiel about what's causing inflation, greedflation, or as I call it, cupidity stupidity. You can see why greedflation was the one that caught on. And I will preview Saturday's show. It's also about Elon Musk. He gave me this idea. The man and I share common ground on straws, plastic straws. Before the market moving takeover, take back tweet, he tweeted about this nipply cup on iced coffee and correctly called out our plastic straw madness. I will be replaying one of my many segments on that in the Saturday Best of show. But first, we've had a couple of weeks to digest the news that the Supreme Court is moving to overturn Roe v. Wade. So I wanted to check in with Emily Bazelon of the New York Times, Yale, and the political gab fest to see what she thinks of arguments about the weakness or strength of the Alito position. 
The day the news broke, she was on Colbert, and I said, no, you know what, Stephen? You can have the rapid reaction. I want the deeply considered time to ripen wisdom of Emily Bazelon, and so shall we all enjoy that up next. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. Emily Bazelon's a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, a senior research fellow at Yale Law School, co-host of the Slate Political Gab Fest, and I'm pleased she's coming back. She doesn't even know she's back because we played an interview of her from a few years ago when we talked about what would happen after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, and so she's back now in present form. Thanks for coming on again, Emily. My pleasure. That's funny. I noticed the transcript of that interview the other day, and I looked at it, although I didn't read the whole thing. You are being unfairly maligned, by the way, uh, on having you. on having an opinion that she shouldn't step down, which you wrote in 2013. But your opinion was actually, uh, by, by the time it came to 2020, your opinion had changed. But also, uh, I don't want to get it wrong, but your opinion was mostly, she's not going to listen to you anyway if you tell her to step down. Yes, my stance in 2013 was that she was not going to appreciate being bossed around and told to step down, which she didn't. Obviously, she should have stepped down. Um, I keep meaning to go back and find the <laughs> proof on the Slate Political Gab Fest that I urged her to resign while she was still alive, but I haven't gone back yet. So uh, someone else maybe can fact check me on that. Yeah. I would love to find that. Other Well, there are other priorities in the air. And we've had a little more than a week to digest the Alito proposed ruling, probable ruling on Dobbs v. Jackson's Jackson Women's Health. And I was wondering, I heard your immediate analysis, but after a week or after maybe being exposed to more of the arguments on both sides, have you gotten a deeper understanding, appreciation for what Alito was ruling, or even a deeper anger at what Alito was uh, trying to foist upon the country? I mean, I think I understand the points well. I think everyone can. I mean, he's making the classic argument against Roe, which was essentially that this should never have been a constitutional matter in the first place. In other words, abortion rights should always be up to the states. And he's also arguing that the court's particular basis for Roe, which was mostly the right to privacy located in 1973 in a kind of amorphous way in the um, liberty interest of the 14th Amendment, he thinks that that is bogus. 
you know, I would say on the legal points that, that it's very important that the decision in 1992 that affirmed Roe's central holding, which is called Planned Parenthood versus Casey, did a much better job of talking about liberty and also invoking um, how much easier it is for women to fully participate in the in America's social and political life if they can choose when and whether to have a baby. Um, Alito's not so interested in all of that because it makes Roe's basis much stronger. For me, what was the most frustrating was the way that he was basically, um, I think, trying to use feminism against itself. Mm -hmm. One of the ways he gets out of a constitutional liberty interest is to say, well, women have made all this progress since 1973. In effect, the court doesn't need to protect their right to abortion anymore. Yeah, that's that's annoying. Uh, talking about how uh, easy it is to be pregnant and simply give up the baby is annoying. Citing 17th century judges uh, who put women to death for witchcraft is certainly annoying. But for or or more than annoying, it's infuriating and it tells the uh, reader that perhaps this person isn't on the same page morally as we would be. But if you stripped all those things or did the most improved version of them to your or my sensibilities, would it actually change the ruling at all, weaken it or strengthen it? That is a great question. I've actually been trying to write about this issue. So if you go back to 1970, before Roe, there is a series of cases. They start in New York. They're brought by deeply feminist lawyers, and they make a whole bunch of arguments for a constitutional right to abortion that are not in Roe. Mm. They talk about women's equality and liberty. And the basic idea is it's a question. How can people truly be free and equal if they don't get to decide when and whether they're going to have a child? That's a sort of deep question. And the women who litigated these early cases argued that liberty and equal protection in the 14th Amendment were very valid grounds for this constitutional right to abortion. The court never, to this day, adopted an equal protection justification for the constitutional right to abortion. So then the question you ask is the obvious one, does it matter? So I'll argue that it doesn't matter. The argument that it doesn't matter is that most people who oppose abortion rights think abortion is murder. Mm -hmm. They care about results. They don't care about legal reasoning. And they're not going to be moved by whatever rationale for abortion the court puts forward. Yeah. Well, I would think I would think to play devil's advocate here is that the reasoning doesn't matter to the people who opposed Roe because they thought abortion wasn't a right. They would certainly say, and I think earnestly believe it, that the reasoning didn't matter to the people who argued Roe because they just invented a right. They wanted to invent a right and they found a way to invent it. Are these feminist scholars or jurists that you're talking about from all those years ago, maybe they would have done a better job at inventing the right or pointing to the right where... You know, they, the the anti-Roe forces would say they don't exist, but that wouldn't have mattered either. Well, I don't think it's inventing a right. I guess this is where I fundamentally disagree with you. Um, if you look at the court's jurisprudence since 1973, there are cases that 
provide for equal protection for women on the basis of gender discrimination, right? So we have United States versus Virginia, which was the case that struck down single-sex admissions policy at Virginia Military Institute. We have this really important case about the family medical leave policy called um, Nevada Department of Human Resources versus Hibbs. Anyway, point being, it is important, I think, to recognize that um, sex discrimination is addressed by equal protection in the 14th Amendment. And once you get there, I think this step to the idea that that includes abortion rights is in my view, it's pretty self-evident. The court recognized none of that. There was no feminist equal protection doctrine in 1973. And so these feminist lawyers I'm talking about, they did not bring Roe. And so this was missing from Roe. Yeah. And the cases they brought didn't make it to the Supreme Court. And also the male judges who heard those cases couldn't really get the argument, right? This is a time when the federal judiciary was 99% male. And the ideas that I'm talking about right now, like they were just really foreign. And so I think of these feminist lawyers as being before their time in a way that I think has been really costly, certainly to American jurisprudence. Again, this realm of considerations that you and I are talking about, like it doesn't affect how a lot of abortion opponents feel, right? Because yes. there is an interest of the fetus that is different. And what, sometimes which we should which we should say that Alito doesn't assert. He never goes there. Well, right. He does instead this, I think, kind of um, this dodge, which is to effectively say, oh, these are this is a policy dispute between two sides. And in fact, he totally puts his thumb on the scale of people arguing that abortion has not benefited women, even though there's tons of social science evidence in the other direction. He doesn't care. Yeah. Um, and I think he also puts his thumb on the scale for the fetal interest, just in terms of the result he's reaching of overturning Roe. Mm -hmm. But he says, oh, all of that's up to the states. And then there's this chef's kiss at the end where he says, well, women are not lacking political power. In fact, these days they vote at higher rates than men. So like, good luck, <laughs> ladies. Duke it out at the polls. This is on you. Yeah. So I, let's just go back to those, the the feminists who you're talking about, who it doesn't matter because they were uh, making a point that was never incorporated into the law. Isn't that really important? If, if uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Lawrence Tribe and David J. Garrow, who's just writing in the Wall Street Journal, and these scholars and jurists uh, and lawyers agree that Roe's reasoning left it open or left it vulnerable, then aren't we seeing a consequence of that vulnerability? I mean, they're pointing to the flaw that at least Alito or the thread that at least Alito pulled on to overturn it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's good that you brought up Justice Ginsburg. She criticized Roe in 1985 and then again in this influential lecture at the end of 1992. And that time it got in, her into hot water with abortion rights lawyers. They yeah. were not so excited when Bill Clinton selected her for her Supreme Court nomination as a result of those remarks. The opposition, the, the, the criticism of Roe, the pointing out its flaws, which were real, um, 
began much earlier. It starts months after the decision in 1973. There's this Yale law professor. He's like a titan in legal academia. His name is John Hart Ely. And basically what he is saying is that, sure, there could be a right to privacy inferred in the Constitution. He's okay with that. But he doesn't think that Justice Blackman, who wrote the opinion in Roe, explains adequately how it means that women's interest in controlling their own childbearing triumphs over the fetus's interest. That essay, um, in Linda Greenhouse's words, disabled Roe from the beginning. It meant that in academia, in high places, in kind of like, you know, elite legal circles, the decision always seemed really shaky and like there was something embarrassing about it. And so I do think that had influence. So then Roe becomes uh, this rickety vehicle that's maybe held together with uh, tape and gum and the intentions of the people who want it to work. But just from a conservative jurist's point of view, all of, and this is not an appeal to authority. This is taking the arguments of these legal thinkers like Yale professors and RBG and everyone else we're talking about. It is a flawed ruling. If this weren't fraught and at the central of American political debate, what you should do with flawed rulings is overturn them and maybe start from the beginning. So what rebuts that? Just the idea of stare decisis? What rebuts that starts with Planned Parenthood versus Casey. You don't have to overturn a poorly reasoned ruling to keep it around. You can make it better. And Casey went a long way toward doing that. I don't think it's an accident that one of the authors of Casey is Sandra Day O'Connor, who's the first woman um, appointed to the Supreme Court. I think it's a huge contribution. And it doesn't invoke equal protection, but it expands the idea of a liberty interest to really encompass the idea of gender equality. So that seems like a crucial move to me. And I don't think that Alito gives it anything like enough credit. And I also think it's gotten sort of lost somehow in the dispute over Roe. Though, again, it does not mean that if you think abortion is murder, you're going to be convinced. Right. So tell me about stare decisis. Well, all of this, um, well, it's a, it's a legal theory or at least a, a legal concept that is infused in the common law and actual laws. But what does this do to the idea? Do we stop citing it? Do we stop believing in it? Or were we attempting to make it do more than the concept ever could? Legally speaking, the thing about stare decisis is that, is that the Supreme Court has always made exceptions to it and, and should, right? So, I mean, Alito brings up this decision, which to me is troubling, but it is a really good example of why we don't want stare decisis to be an iron rule. And I'm talking about Plessy versus Ferguson, which was the court's decision in 1896 saying separate but equal. Right. And upholding the color line. And it's vital that the court overturn that ruling with right. Brown versus Board. And so the thing about stare decisis is always that there was going to be a way around it. Yeah. Um, there just had to be justices who had a deep enough commitment against abortion rights to topple this very important 50, almost 50-year-old decision, right? I mean, I cannot think of another time in our country's history where we have had a rollback of individual rights like this one. I just can't think of a parallel. Yeah. 
So let us talk about the idea of the legitimacy of the court. It's almost like stare decisis. <laughs> you know, it is both in that you have it until you don't, and it's very amorphic. Is there a crisis of legitimacy upon us, or has that always been baked into the idea of the Supreme Court? That's such a great question. I mean, the Supreme Court has always been the least powerful branch. Alexander Bickle called it the least dangerous branch. I'm not sure that that has always been true. It only has enforcement powers if the American people believe in it, because there are no cops who enforce its orders, and it's not elected. Well, why do we listen to the court? Because the cost of not doing that would be greater. Right. That's what we think. I mean, since Marbury versus Madison in 1803, the court has taken upon itself the role of being the arbiter of the meaning of the Constitution. The Constitution itself does not say that's the court's job. No. But it's worked for us as a country, this form of judicial <laughs> review we've had. Yeah. And I think it's scary to imagine, like, really departing from it. On the other hand, I have to say, and I hear this among law professors and law students, it is a really odd moment to be kind of standing up for the Supreme Court and the rule of law. Like there is something that feels empty about it. But I wonder what you think about this. I think you could argue that the conservative legal movement is the most successful social movement we've had in many decades. It absolutely like, is, if you define success as actual outcomes, right? It's unrivaled what the what the Federalist Society and principled conservatives who saw this as a ruling that needed to change and did the work, and you could argue maybe at the fringes uh, broke rules to get there, they would argue the same thing the other way, but did the work, recognized what it takes to sway a court, uh, erected the apparatus to do that, elected the people to do that, all through legal means. I mean, in a way, though, it's not the points of view that I support. That is showing that the system works. And not just for some people. They use the system as the system was meant to work. They were more serious about it than people now who are protesting outside the Supreme Court justices' houses. Right. And they've done it, even though most of their views, again, are really out of step with most Americans. I mean, uh, you know, abortion is complicated, but many more people think abortion should be eh, mostly legal than completely illegal, which is what we're about to have in like half the states. And it is it is really quite remarkable to have a social movement triumph, even though (laughs) it is so out of sync. And it's because of this realization that you if you took over the courts, if you controlled that organ of power, you could really get stuff done. And we're seeing the wages of that. And there's no question that people worked really hard for it. Yeah. Um, And the last question is, do you have any thoughts on protesting outside justices' houses? You know, I don't have a lot of thoughts about this. Like, I don't know. I guess I would say that as a kind of resistant but member of the establishment, like things like this make me queasy. I think like, okay, well, tit for tat, this is going to be on the other side too. Then there's this part of me that just feels like all the fussing about it, no matter what the politics are, like people want to go stand outside someone's house and and yell and make a fuss like they're allowed to do that. That seems like in line with robust American free speech rights. Um, what do you think? I think uh, Chuck Schumer convinced me. At first I thought it was bad and I said, oh, 
Sonia Sotomayor is going to get this and everyone who lives in her large apartment building, they're going to be subject to this. And then I said to myself, well, how? How will Sonia Sotomayor ever become in a thin majority that conservatives don't like? That'll be in 20 years. And then when Chuck Schumer says, yeah, protest, I remembered, oh, yeah, he used to live a few blocks from me. Every day there were hundreds of protesters outside (laughs) his house. He lived with it. I think uh, maybe Alito can, too. Yeah. I mean, I generally am in favor of protest. Emily Bazelon is a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, a senior research fellow at Yale Law School, host of the Political Gab Fest. Her latest book is Charged, the movement to transform American prosecution and end mass incarceration. As always, a great pleasure, Emily. Thanks for having me. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. And now the spiel. Prices are going up in the U.S. and throughout the world, and as is the case with inflation, it begets more inflation. Consumers have more money. Consumers spend more money. Prices rise. Workers need more money to purchase products. Workers have more money to spend, and they do. Add on an embattled Ukraine and an entangled supply chain, and here we are. And as a professor who has written on economics, Elizabeth Warren knows where to lay the blame for high prices. This isn't about inflation. This is about price gouging. Wait, what about all that basic economic stuff I pointed out? See, the thing is, if describing a rise in prices reflecting a rise in cost, plus corporations trying to do what they do to maximize profits, if you say that, it's not inflammatory. And how do you expect to inflame anyone with explanations that are not inflammatory? Take this sentence from Elizabeth Warren. Quote, American families shouldn't be bankrolling corporate America's record high profits. Flambe! But let's unpack those words. Profit is the amount of money received that exceeds costs. Bankroll is to provide money to. So Elizabeth Warren is really saying that America's families shouldn't provide money to corporations if the amount of money is too much. But what if they want to buy the stuff? And who defines too much? Economic theory says the market will define it. That is an excellent way to address this and other price spikes. There are a lot of ways around this problem. Joe Biden thinks one is to stick it to corporations. The Republican plan is to increase taxes on the middle class families, let billionaires and large companies off the hook as they raise profits, raise prices and re-profits of record number, record amounts. Now, the Republicans are reflexively pro-corporate, and corporations are making as much money during this time as they can, but the Democrats, or at least the economic populists among them, are behaving ignorantly in their explanation as to the cause of inflation. Catherine Rampell of the Washington Post had a brilliant column on this today, an inflation conspiracy theory is infecting the Democratic Party. 
The conspiracy, which he calls greedflation, that's the idea, is exemplified by a bill introduced by Senators Warren and Tammy Duckworth yesterday. It strikes out at price gouging and, quote, unconscionably excessive pricing. I'll tell you, when I saw that Heinz ketchup was $6, I did not pass out, but I would rather pay less. I guess I proved that it's not literally unconscionable, but still, the Heinz is too damn high. Of course, if I and everyone else refuses to pay that much, prices will come down. And also, when profits are high and there is consumer demand, that's exactly when corporations hire more and pay better wages. So really, the greedflation explanation, it's just irresponsible. There are a few exceptions that I should note because I'm trying to be fair here. One is that there are cabals in some industries like meat packing. Biden has called them out repeatedly. Another is that consumers generally do believe that they're paying higher prices just because of higher costs and that corporations are simply passing the costs on to consumers and not adding a little. Corporations are adding a little. That's what corporations do. If the perception of this changes drastically, prices could come down, but usually how consumers and producers communicate to each other is the market, not arguments or doomed to fail laws about the market. The idea of blaming any of the inflationary pressure on greed is weird. Profit maximization is how corporations operate, what they're built to do in all circumstances. Corporations are no more greedy than a koala is hungry. I could have said a shark is hungry, but that makes them seem predatory, not cuddly. Corporations want to earn as much as they can, and if their prices are too high, they will find out by consumers not paying or competitors coming in and eating their lunch, like koalas do with eucalyptus, or like a shark does with a koala that falls into an ocean after eating too much eucalyptus. A real problem of affordability isn't of anything that comes in a can or is molded by a machine. Affording things like education, healthcare, and housing, those problems are immense and hard to solve. Fixes, or whatever the unconscionably excessive bill is, will foul things up more than the pandemic snarled the supply chain. The urge to blame high prices on corporations deciding to make record profits right now on things like blue jeans, green beans, or sardines is misplaced like a koala in the ocean. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pasca is the continuous improvement lead, where she participates in line loss analysis and line improvement plans, including but not limited to waste elimination and yield improvement. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Umperu, jiperu, duperu. And thanks for listening.